All right, open the First Corinthians chapter 8. We have escaped chapter 7. Um, and we all got out in one piece, but there was a lot. And you guys have been wonderful to interact with. The feedback has been great. And I, I know there's been some challenging categories, some helpful categories, but, but you really have interacted with this Holy Spirit-given material so wonderfully. Um, this is, this, I'm going to try and do a whole chapter today, so that's kind of an intimidating thought. But we're going to try and do all of chapter 8. And how appropriate, when you read this, how appropriate that we're talking about this on New Members Sunday. That we're welcoming people into our lives. And we're, and we're welcoming people that we don't know. I mean, how many of you guys recognize that when you stared at a group of people that you kind of don't know, you don't really know what condition their life is in. You don't know what their background is. You don't know what needs they have. You don't know what role you might be able to play in being a significant person in their life for the sake of the kingdom of God. You, you just don't know that, right? And, and that's the case in Corinth as well. There were people who were in different places trying to do one thing together, be a church. And that generates some issues. Let's read this passage and we'll take it apart. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are maybe so-called gods in heaven and on earth, and indeed there are many gods, many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for selecting moments to reveal transcendent truths to every one of your people. What this Corinthian setting has taught us so much about ourselves, about you. And we're here again to learn and to be helped so that our lives will bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you've got something to write with, write this phrase down. 
Here's your phrase. Our individuality often gets in the way of our togetherness. Our individuality often gets in the way of our togetherness. Uh, It's just a fancy way of saying we all have a problem with being selfish. (laughs) Which we all know is true, right? But when you say it that way, I think that that's a little bit more suited to our times, suited to our culture. Uh, There's a premium on individuality today. The premium on that, that's a good thing. You're applauded for being an individual. You're applauded for not going with the flow and being like everybody else and just doing what everybody else requires you or expects of you to do. That's a, that's a thing to be applauded. We are designing our ways of life today in a way that features individuality. Even if it's individuality at the expense of throwing the majority into great chaos. You can sue anybody and everybody these days. And so the individual's right to do something can attack what's acceptable to many others because that individual, his way, his wants, his preferences are being given permission to rule. If you watch the way we do life, we we are more and more learning how to do life individually and less and less learning how to do it together. Go into any public setting, go into your own home, Go anywhere where people are gathered and it's like, you know, we have these little devices that we take out and we, if you can imagine, you press them and this dome of silence goes around me. And I can isolate, even though I'm with you, I've isolated myself from your little disruptive, meaningless world so that I can be involved in mine. And I don't really need you even though you're in the room with me. I don't even know you exist. And, and that's somehow okay. That's not even rude anymore. Because individuality is what matters. And so therefore, all forms of togetherness become strained, become disruptive. I mean, listen, how many times do you go inside your little cone of silence and somebody comes and disrupts you? I was reading an important news feed. What, what do you want? You know, we don't quite say that, but that's how we feel. Because you're interrupting my individuality. I'm having my own individual experience here right now. So were the Corinthians. They were having their own individual way of doing things. and, And it was troublesome, bothersome, too much effort to take into account those around them who were doing life differently, who were not where they were. Didn't have the same understandings, etc. We're being offended or stumbling over something that they were doing as individuals. And so Paul's going to wisely draw this conversation into a category that they're not even paying attention to, but we're going to pay attention to it because Apostle Paul's going to help us. So chapter 8, verse 1 brings the next topic, right? Corinthians is just moving through topics. Paul generated some topics in response to things he was hearing. They've sent a letter to Paul. And so they've generated some topics that he's going to walk through each one. He's going to pick up each one. That's what he does right here. Now concerning food offered to idols. Why does he say it that way? Because they've probably written the letter to him. What about this issue of eating meat? That's been sacrificed to idols. A couple of quick thoughts for some background here. Craig Blomberg 
says Paul now addresses the second issue raised by the Corinthians in their letter to him. Most meat sold in the town marketplace came from sacrificial animals that had been slaughtered at pagan temple ceremonies. Did these rituals somehow automatically taint the food? Could Christians buy it? Could they eat it if it was offered to them as friend, in a friend's homes? What about the various social events, weddings, parties, clubs, and so on, which often use the temple dining halls for their festivities? Could Christians participate and eat meat at these events? What about more overtly religious rites in those temples? The issue clearly was not as simple or innocuous as it might at first glance seem to Westerners today. You and I glance at the Corinthians sometimes when we oversimplify their situation. Uh, There's some complexity here. There's some, some issues of how would you actually apply this to them how would you go about walking out these things, right? So, so today we're going to see a particular very clear principle, right? The principle is going to be very clear. And, and I want to make sure that we leave here in agreeing that, yeah, that principle is clear. But the details are not going to be so clear. And that's quite true of our lives in a lot of ways. But it's true of the scriptures, right? So that's why I titled this thing, Clear Principles and Unclear Details. Because that's what we're going to end up exiting with. A little further background, Ben Witherington says, Several temples in Corinth had dining rooms where feasts were held on many occasions, including birthdays. Temples were the restaurants of antiquity. Some, if not most, of the meat available in the market had a history of being a temple sacrifice. In summary... As these other commentators would agree, the issue is not eating meat, but eating meat in an idol temple. All right, so you've got to get Corinth a little bit here. Uh, Corinth is, is a blend, and you know, don't get over-religious here. It is religious. It's a very religious setting. There's a lot of spiritual stuff going on here. But just like religion, there's religion in our country, isn't there? How many of you guys know that I, the, most of the religion in our country is a blend of secularism, uh, religious traditions, maybe meaningful to some, may not be. They just may be going through the motion. Superstition. How many of you guys know superstitious people? Right? I mean, they even get their superstition blended in with their religious practices. But they, their lives are very secular, but they've got this blend in it. Well, that's Corinth, too. So, you know, people who were devoted to Zeus or Apollo or Aphrodite, they were secular as well. They had the same kind of struggles that we had. They were trying to get ahead in life. They were doing life. They, they wanted improvement in their business. And, you know, associating with the temple could be, a, you know, carrying a, a rabbit's foot. I mean, it could just be a way of getting the juju uh, from Aphrodite onto their business so that they could have a little bit more... Uh, Better year next year, better, better bottom line. And then there was a dimension to these temples where there are people who really believed and, and really were devoted to unseen forces under the names of these gods. So this is the setting that they have. And almost, you know, in the way in which our, our city has a little bit of a districts to it, you know, you got French Quarter, you got the warehouse district. You, kinda, you probably had areas in town that had temple districts to them. That, you know, once a temple got built, this was a massive economic issue. There was a great deal of 
meat available because they sacrificed to these gods. And so that meat was going to go out into the public in some manner. Yeah, uh, you, you know, remember this is a patron system here, right? So if you, if you want to survive in this patron system, you're going to do some networking and you're going to get connected to the right people. And it just might so happen that when you get connected up the food chain to somebody who's important, uh, that guy is devoted to Aphrodite or he's just a member of the Lions Club, if you will. Right? It's just what he does. He's just a part of that club because it gives him a social setting. And so when he throws a party, the patrons threw parties for the people downstream from them. Right? So their business associates and the people who work for their business associates, even some of their slaves would be invited to these gatherings. These gatherings took place in big temple settings where food was going to be served and it was going to be food that had been sacrificed to idols and you've been invited and you're a Christian. So this was everyday challenging stuff that's going on here. And so this develops into a conflict in the church in Corinth. You've got some people who feel like, of course we can do that. Of course we can eat the food there. Of course we can eat that meat. And they've got an explanation as to why. And you've got another set of people who feel like, no, you shouldn't be doing that. Because there's, there's people here who, that's a problem for them. Do you know where that guy came from? I mean, again, like the people who just joined us today. They didn't know anything about their backgrounds. What makes them up? Where they're going to stumble? Where they're not going to stumble in life? So there's this debate that takes place here. And it looks like as it opens up uh, this debate about whether or not you can eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Paul does something here that I hope we'll all take notice of. Paul Paul is a, a master minister here. He's an apostolic gift. He is, he is functioning it with pastoral care and wisdom in this moment. Because you'll notice Paul begins to discuss the issue of meat sacrifice to idols by discussing something else. Right? Concerning food offered to idols. We know all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. But there's this other dimension of love. Wait, wait, Paul, we didn't write to you about knowledge and love. We wrote to you about food sacrifice to idols. Yes, you did. That's what you came in for. But this is what we need to talk about. And can I just encourage you in this regard? The Corinthians, they, they model something for us. This book is so helpful. You, you, you know this. If you're married, if you've been in, in a relationship for a season, if you've walked with other people, uh, you need people outside of whoever you're relating to. When you're in a conflict, you need people outside of you to help you quite often. This is this, a master job of counseling is taking place right here. And I, and I think this is how our pastors care for people. When you come for counseling care, this is what a counseling meeting would often feel like. You came in to fight about this, and pastoral wisdom said, hey, can, can we talk about this instead? Because this is the real issue that addresses that. Yeah, I know you want to talk about this. I know you want, to, you want to invite me to be a referee about the fight that you guys had last week. I mean, I'm using phrases. Some of you have come to me for counseling. I, I use these phrases on you. It's like, I can. If you'd like me to be a referee for the fight last week, I can. I can sit down, you can make your case, you can make her case, and I can referee and say, oh, you win, you lose, and that's our counseling appointment. Or you can let me spend some time in another area that you're not asking about that really is more important than that. And that's what Paul's doing here. 
Right, so he's going to talk to them about knowledge and love. Knowledge and love. He's going to introduce them to something that I hope we get a chance to see this morning. That there is this, this tension, this cord that gets pulled on. On the one end, knowledge grabs that cord and pulls on it. And on the other end, love grabs the same cord and pulls on it. And all of a sudden, there is this tension that gets created between knowledge and love. Now, if you know anything about tensions in life, you know many of them cannot and should not be solved by just cutting that. You're going to have to learn how to manage some of these tensions between knowledge and love. And that's where we're going to get a lesson in here today. All right. This is not the last time Paul's going to step into the Corinthian mess and introduce them to love, right? The famous love chapter is in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind. The, ex- the explanation for what love is needs to come to these people. These people have figured out how to do life with love sitting in the corner, being inactive, not being featured, not being completely ignored, that'd be unfair, but not being featured, And when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, spiritual gifts are on the table. Gatherings are on the table. Ministry to others are on the table. And Paul's got to say, whoa, 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 time out. You know what's missing here is love. You guys are doing all these things, but but you're missing love. And so into 1 Corinthians comes chapter 13. Tucked right in the midst of ministry. Care for each other. Ministry gifts. All right, now don't do here what I've heard bad theologians do when they get to chapter 13. Chapter 13 gets started with a discussion of communion together, life together, how we relate to one another, spiritual gifts, how they're to be used, how they edify the body. Then love comes in, then we go back to spiritual gifts and talk about it some more. What some will do is we'll close their eyes, ignore the spiritual gifts conversation because they feel like, well, the superior conversation here is love. Love's the superior conversation. Well, listen, love needed to be introduced to these people, but Paul in no way is saying, hey, I'm going to introduce love, so feel free to stomp on spiritual gifts, ignore them, treat them poorly, act like they're bad. Some theologians do this. Okay, right now, you could be tempted to do that with knowledge. We need to have a conversation about love. It's not, hey, knowledge puffs up. See? See all you overthinker egghead people? All you doctrine people? See? See? As though the Bible is against knowledge. Do you actually, you're going to sit in this room today and tell me, do you actually believe the Bible's against knowledge? Do you think the Bible's just saying, hey, listen, don't remember any of this. Just do what feels right and love each other. Look how thick this is. Look how many statements are in it. (laughs) There's knowledge all through this thing, right? Quick warnings. I won't go through these verses. You can look them up later. Hosea 4. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. Listen, you can't come to God and believe correctly without knowledge. This fuzzy, feel-good, warm thing called love that we're all soaking in. I don't even know what I believe and I don't know what you believe and it doesn't really matter, right? We just need to love each other. That's not the Bible. That's not God. God turns around and says, hey, you want to reject knowledge? I'm going to reject you. What? That's not loving. 
But that's what God says. Knowledge matters. God is who he is. It matters that we know that. It matters what we believe about him. Isaiah said the same thing to his people. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. If you know the wrong stuff, your life is going to be in a ditch. Even if you're really hyped up on love. So it's not like you can have love without having any knowledge. You're right. So this tension can't just be cut. You just can't say, that's the problem in the church. We don't love each other. We're too busy trying to know everything. That's a problem. But don't act like you can solve that by pulling your scissors out and cutting knowledge out of the equation. You don't get to do that. Although, I know, some of us might like to try. But there is introduced into this knowledge category a secret ingredient here. Look in verse 2. Right, he says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. That's an interesting twist, isn't it? That's a strange thing to say on the heels of that. But I'm going to read from what I put in your notes there. Your knowledge, right? Your reasons and your data from which you do life, right? That's how you live your life. Cannot function correctly without a proper connection to God. And that's how Paul illustrates this. He says, you might think you know, but you don't know as you ought to know. And then he introduces a couple of ingredients that inform that statement in verse 3. If anyone loves God and is known by God. Right? All right so there's stuff to know out there. There's ideas out there. There's, there's concepts and principles and convictions and thoughts and ways things should work. And who's right and who's wrong. There, there's all that stuff out there. God says you can't manage that without two things. A love for God. And being known by God. If you subtract those two things, what you're left with is a knowledge that will invariably puff you up. Right? So there's a lot of stuff for us to know. There's a lot of stuff about doing church. There's a lot of stuff about being married. There's a lot of stuff about having jobs and relating to people to know. That's supposed to be mixed with and integrated with a love for God. An affection for God, a priority for God and who he, I like the way God is. I'm drawn to God. I have desires toward God. There is an orientation for me about God that, that he captures me and enamors me and I'm devoted to him. You understand, even in that description, it becomes a lot safer for you to introduce knowledge to me now. Because that's going to do something for me. And then he adds another dimension to that. That you love God and that you are known by God, right? That, 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 that's terminology for friendship and relationship with God in the scriptures. The knowing of God was an intimacy, was a relationship dimension. So we just throw knowledge in the room with people. God says, listen, you're, you're not safe to operate with that stuff until you have a love for God and until you are known by God. You are accessible. To God, your heart interacts 
with God. You receive conviction and adjustment and influence because you have a relationship with God. Listen, if that's not in place, then more than likely you and I become people who have knowledge that puffs us up. And we become interesting folks to deal with. In your outline it says the kingdom knowledge is informed and counseled by love. That knowledge gets influence. It, it knows some important and relevant facts, but the use of that knowledge is adjusted. It's tempered. It's paced. It's paused by love. See, life with people is more than just knowing the right thing and the wrong thing. It's more than that. There's patience. There's forbearance. There's compassion. See, these are words... You know, compassion is not a word that tries to figure out the right and wrong first. It just has compassion. It sees your woundedness and your need and it just jumps in with... It doesn't sit and say, oh, wait, let me... Where's the right and wrong in this? Right, Knowledge does that. But there's a dimension that love jumps in with both feet where knowledge stands back and weighs things. It's helpful if we kind of know some of this about ourselves. Kingdom knowledge has a warmth, a human understanding and a compassion to it. It is seldom some cold set of principles where only the facts are important. Listen, without this ingredient, knowledge puffs up. A puffed up people are problematic people, period. Puffed up people are problematic people. Because that puffed upness, I'm puffed up about things that make sense to me. This is the highlighting of individuality. This is because I understand life in a way that you just need to get it. You need to get on board with me. And so I'm puffed up. I feel like my position is the right position. And that's all I know. And that's all I'm convinced of. And that's all I'm going to be. And I get puffed up and get lost in myself. That's problematic, right? That's going to be a problem when you go to do togetherness. When you join a church. And people join their lives to you. There's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of knowledge in the Bible. There's a lot of knowledge about how to do life. There's a lot of knowledge that surrounds what we're going to label right and wrong. Okay, not okay. These relationships can become tremendously disrupted when all we've got going on is knowledge. And that's true in every together setting. It's true in your family. It's true in your marriage. It's true in business partnerships. If this is just about knowledge and not knowledge that has attention because it's being pulled on constantly by love, you you're going to have problems in these categories. You may not have exactly Corinthian problems and it may not have anything to do with meat sacrificed to idols. How many of us read this chapter and we go, oh, that's not about us. I'm pretty sure McDonald's isn't like, you know, bowing down to something out back. You know, all the employees are like, here, have a hamburger. So this doesn't apply to us, right? Wrong. Because Paul quickly applied it to us when he says, hey, there's this knowledge love thing going on in this conversation. Do you notice it? Right, let me introduce you to you for a second. And can I just say this? I wish I, wish I had a, 
two hours just talk on this one point. There's something that Christians have an amazing ability to do. And this is where I think Paul was getting at when he says those who are known by God. Um, You know, when you're known by God, when there's a receiving of God knowing you, God might introduce you to you. You know how many of us have no interest in knowing ourselves? I don't want to know me. I don't, I, don't even, I don't like reading my own press clippings. I don't like looking at myself. So we just don't bother to know ourselves. Everybody else has got to get to know me. But I don't know me. And, and what's being highlighted here is people have tendencies in themselves that are going to make them not get along with each other. And you're going to have to come to grips with that. So you've got, you know, you got knowledge people and, and you've got love people. Right? And, and you have a tendency to be one or the other. Everybody does. It's kind of like going to school. Right? I mean, you've got math people and you've got history people. They're seldom the same. But, but here's, the, here's the problem in this equation. Math, math is only interested in facts. It's numbers that fit into equations that spit out other numbers. So that there's, there's no sense of humanity in this. You don't adjust this. You know, no one does a math equation and feels all warm when they're done. You know, it's like, oh, what a story. Look, look how it resolved. It was a four. Oh. You know, you don't go after math that way. History you do, right? When you learn about history, there's people, there was conflict, there was pressure, there was loss, there was famine. There was suffering, and then out of that emerged decisions and actions, and some of them we might say, ooh, that's probably not the right decision, but I get it. I, look at what she'd gone through. Of course she did that, right? This is how you interact with history. So there's people in the room here, you're really good at history, and there's some of us in the room here who are really good at math, and that's how we do life, right? I'm, I'm going to say this carefully because I, I do think all of us owe everybody, including the God of the universe, to know ourselves at some level. We don't ever fully know ourselves. But at some point, you might want to go ahead and risk the adventure of getting to know yourself. Right, so true story. I get this. I know that some people in the room right now who know me are going, yeah, Keith, what are you going to say? Because we know you're a math guy. We know you. Um, Yeah, I am. I am. For all the math people, power to the math people, okay? There you go. Thank you. Um, See, a math tendency is a tendency to gather all the relevant facts, to crunch the numbers, put it into equation, and pop out the answer. And the answer is usually something that is either black or white. And so that's how we want the world to be. We want the world to be solvable by an equation. We're black and white kind of doers. We look at everything to, okay, let's grab all the salient knowledge that's available. Let's figure this thing out. And then it's either this or it's that. Okay, that's how all the math people are in the room. Now, the history people, they take all the nuances of the humanity that's in the story and they blend it with it. And so they, they start feeling compassionate towards something. The math people aren't interested in compassion. We just want the right thing to be done. And why not do it right now? It just makes sense. If I know the right answer, do it now. But the history people don't mind delay. They don't mind patience. They don't mind letting people travel through their issues. But see, no, no, no. If I'm a math person, I know you're wrong right now. 
I know you're wrong now, right now. So as soon as I know that, I need to let you know that. And you're going to need to change really, really quick. The history people are like, what? That's not how you deal with people. Well, a lot of the history people don't have any math going on in their life. They got, you know, very little right and wrong, quite honestly, sometimes. It's just, let's just be patient and care for people. All right. At some point, you got to get to know yourself, right? So at some point in my life, I'm sitting, this is, I'm probably in my late 30s at this point. I'm sitting in La Madeline and I'm having Peter explain to me what it's like to have a conversation with me. <laughs> you remember this day? <laughs> no, not on this day you weren't. Uh, so he's explaining, you know, I, you know, I say things, you sort through them, you grab all the parts and you like, you didn't use a math equation, but you just sort of stick it all in something and out crunches this thing and I don't even know where you're at. It's like, it's done. It's like, I don't feel like you listen. I don't feel like you're understanding what I'm trying to say, etc. So he's wanting me to treat him like he's human. What a waste of time. Let's get on with some stuff here. And I'm crunching numbers. I'm just, I'm just looking for all the, the, the knowledge principles that are available here. Let's just grab them all, bring them into the room and solve this thing. Let's go. Only to have my wife tell me almost the same thing within not too long of a period right after. Sometimes the two of them, I would think they would get together. Because they would have these real similar conversations with me over the years. It's like, Peter just said that to me. Have y'all been talking? And it was God trying to introduce me to me. Like, this is what it's like to relate to you. This is what you're like. And so it took me a while to see that. At first, I just, okay, I take your word for it. But I did begin to see that. And I began to realize I have need of my humanity to grow. Right? So God is faithful. At some point, if he wants to really introduce you to yourself, he might put you in your own special class. Your own moment of, how about take some notes right here in this season of life. And so this was about, I was about 40 years old. And I went through just a season where... Man, no matter how hard I crunched the numbers for myself and tried to pull the trigger on things, it just would not move. I could not get out from underneath the weight of things. Like I was not changing. My situation was not changing. My faith was not resolving anything. It just looked like, oh, so this is what it looks like when you feed stuff in and the computer stares back at you and goes, (coughs) and life doesn't change and you don't change and your struggle continues. All right, some of you guys were in the church when we taught through Romans. This is when we get to Romans chapter 8, and I taught a message called the doctrine of weakness. That was not out of Romans chapter 8. That was right out of here, right? (laughs) I was having an experience of God introducing me to my own humanity, my own weakness, my own struggles. From that moment on, I had a reference point for everybody else's categories, That people can come to you with a weakness that it ain't my weakness, but I get it. I got my own category and this is yours. And mine doesn't yield easily to me and probably yours doesn't either, I bet. And you begin to deal with people in a sense of taking up an awareness of them and their life and what their life feels like. Even if it's not your life, you at least now have a category for their humanity to care for their humanness. All right, well, listen, this is what's going on 
in the Corinthian church. And you got this group of knowledge people who are being featured in this exchange here. And what are you going to say? You're going to read what they say? Listen, technically, technically, they're right. The knowledge people win the argument. By the way, the knowledge people always win the argument. And, and the people who are, who are the history people walk away just frustrated, feel like they weren't listened to because you don't have the data, right? The data always wins and, and knowledge people are data collectors. And so we'll drown you with our argument. And that's what they were doing. They Technically, they were right. I mean, do you hear? Here, look, here's their argument. Verse four. Listen. As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know an idol has no real existence. There's no God but one. There may be so-called gods and so-called lords. Yeah, for us, there's, there's one God, right? So there's argument number one. And you fast forward down to verse eight. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we eat it or if we don't. All right, so they just made two very biblical, legitimate arguments. You and I pick this Bible up and we know how many gods are there? Is there really a Zeus? Is there really an Aphrodite? Come on, is there really? These are made up concepts that are empty and hollow. There's nothing to them. So you bring that argument and you say, you know what? These things, we all know this. These things don't even exist. They win the argument. You cannot come back and say, well, maybe they do. You can't. You don't win that argument. And then he turns around and says, hey, you know what? These things don't commend us to God. And they're right. Have you read the doctrine of grace? Do you understand how God operates? You cannot commend yourself to God, nor can you decommend yourself to God. Grace functions to make you right with God. Argument one, knowledge people win again. But Paul is arguing with these guys. Yeah, you guys know, but you don't really know. Because your knowledge isn't infused with love. This argument is going to go on from chapter 8 all the way into chapter 10. When you fast forward to chapter 10, you get to verse 23. These are familiar phrases. Knowledge people like phrases. Especially, it's kind of like citing case law. You know, kind of like pulling up in this one versus that one. You know, well, they're pulling this up. All things are lawful. This is a phrase we've seen already, right? So they're going to argue, hey, all things are lawful. And Paul's going to say, wait, but, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, says the knowledge people. But not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. See those little phrases right there? Knowledge people don't run towards those phrases. Love people do. Does this help someone? Does this build someone up? Are we seeking their good? Are we caring for the neighbor? Say, you don't get that just by being a knowledge person. You're going to have to be... A person who has love operating in them for those ideas to come into your conversation, to come into your relationships. It's not just whether you're technically right or wrong. And then this is a good awareness, right? Look in verse 7. This is good awareness. This is good awareness illustrated for us this morning. However, not all possess this knowledge, right? So the knowledge guys make an argument and Paul turns us, but guys, not everybody knows that. Not everybody understands that the way you're explaining it. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. 
Right? Not everybody knows the same things that you know. Not everybody's functioning out of a life that makes sense because you understand certain things because your life story is different than somebody else's life story. Right? So here, into the church comes all kinds of people. God is putting them in. I put some in this morning. And we're going to relate to these folks and we're going to discover there's some differences here. Right? In your outline, I said this is a reality to be aware of. The body of Christ is made up of people with diverse backgrounds and understandings and traditions and cultural formations. And this is increasingly true at Lakeview. Right? Former associations. I, I don't know what this group brought in with them. Former Jehovah Witnesses. Islam background. Area of struggle. An addiction problem? Abused growing up? I I, I don't know. But at some point we're going to bump into something that's an issue for somebody else. And Paul's saying, hey, well, you you might want to know that. And and you might want to be prepared that your own life might need to be adjusted for their sake. And that's what he's saying. So here's the need being addressed by Paul. The actions of some in the church who are acting within their rights are guided by biblical truths are creating a situation of stumbling for some others in the church. They're not biblically errant. They're biblically right on. They're acting within their rights but yet that is creating an opportunity for stumbling for some others in the church, right? Quick note, the actions within themselves are not sinful. These are not sinful things. If they were sinful things, they'd be talked about differently. It would simply be identified as sin, wrong. God says, repent, go on. Second, the stumbling is very subjective. It may not be true of everyone. It may not be true in every church. I imagine some churches in parts of the world have to address certain issues that we'll never have to address. Might have to make some adjustments for people's backgrounds and associations that we'll never have to address that. So it's not in the Bible this way. Last, if you are not meaningfully a member of the church, you don't care about this. This is where we started in Corinthians. If you read the letter to the Corinthians and you're just a Christian, a Christian who's doing his own individual thing, you, you don't get quite a bit of this book. Can I just tell you that? You, the bunch of this just doesn't make any sense. Right? Here, here's where we started. One of the first weeks that we started out, Ben Witherington shared this thought. He says, if we are to characterize 1 Corinthians as either a problem-oriented letter or progress-oriented letter, then it must surely be placed in the former category. Paul is still having to sort out A multitude of basics for the Corinthian church. Paul is in the midst of trying to create community. He's trying to build people into each other. He's trying to give them a partnership for the sake of the gospel and for the purpose of God that is meant to be accomplished through more than an individual. It's meant to be accomplished through an organism called the body of Christ, through a family called the people of God. So that's... Paul's agenda. Now listen, that may or may not be our agenda, right? Do you understand? This verse is going to tap into your world and it's going to say, hey, would you consider adjusting your life for the sake of somebody over there who's in a different place than you are? That's what this verse is going to call on us to do. 
Now, if I'm not really building anything here with the rest of these people, my answer quickly will be to ignore whatever I'm learning here today. Because that's not a big value for me. And so why would I interfere, inconvenience, change my world? Unless it is a big value for me. And I want God's purpose to thrive in this place called the church. And it's important that it does. Skip down to verse 9. So what do we do? Well, two words here. In the face of this argument, in the face of individual rights to do some things that they do have the right to do, Paul says, but, but, take care. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Take care. That's the fix it right there. Care. Care about these people. That's what he says. They got this issue going on. It's dividing you guys in the church. There's a war. There's shots being fired back and forth. There's a knowledge base for why you're doing it. Care. Just, Just care about these people. Who are in a different place than you. That this affects their life differently than it affects yours. Just care. Take up their lives for a moment. Stare at it long enough to be involved. And to just care about them. And that's going to find its way into this little phrase I put in your outline. Your actions. Your choices. Your boundaries. Your guidelines. Your priorities and practices. Your permissions are not merely the product of your rights and your accurate knowledge. You are called to care about others. So you you might be able to make a theological argument that gives you permission for all kinds of things. And you will be able to make that argument. But the discussion has just begun, right? Because that knowledge is going to need to get informed by love and they're going to pull on each other in that moment. And what might have been easy to come up with a solution just simply by way of knowledge is going to now need to be infused with love and you might change how you approach that for the sake of the weak among you. That's who this is directed at. Care about the way now who are the weak i put my own definition in there for you the weak are those who lack some strength or understanding or benefit that you possess that's who the weak are in this section they're people who just they don't have something that you've got that makes your life capable okay with something they don't have that So in the absence of that, they are in a weaker condition. Now here's an interesting thought here, because I think this is a principle that that finds its way into all of our togetherness. This is the exact same word that's used in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, speaking of the togetherness of a husband and a wife. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Same word. Same word. Husbands in this setting, not church members, but husbands are being called on to to do the same thing. To take up the issue of another person in a caring way. 
to make personal adjustments on their end simply because there's a different condition called weakness there. This is not a right or wrong issue. This is where so many marriages fall apart because they shop for the right and wrong only. And if you're a math person, you live there. And boy, you're fun to live with. I'm sure my wife can say that. Because when you get into a conflict, the math people aren't interested in some of the other nuances that make life what it is. They're just going to argue the rightness or the wrongness of a situation. They're going to gather the facts. They're going to pronounce the judgments. Here's what the equations spit out. It's this. Look at it. It's that. But your spouse probably sees a lot more other things. And this passage turns around the husband and says, hey, husbands, don't just figure out how to be right. Figure out how to be understanding. Figure out how to love somebody who's in a different place than you are. And that's what the Corinthians had to do. I think I wrote this in your outline. Husbands possess certain strengths, abilities, pace, it's a good word, fortitude, capacity that your wife might not possess. Love calls on you to acknowledge that and adjust yourself accordingly. Not because you're wrong and she's right. That's a knowledge argument, isn't it? How many of us are waiting to solve our marital conflicts by simply who's right and who's wrong in this? And that's all we're bringing to the table. We're going to fight about concluding who's right and who's wrong. And listen, the knowledge people, they do their homework better. They gather their facts better. They come from a better angle. They're like an attorney who can get a guilty person off innocent. But in a relationship with others, togetherness is informed by something more than just knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. These are good words. You want to hold on to these words. They'll help your marriage. Words like pace, Capacity. These are kind of neutral words in some ways, right? Pace is not a sinful word. Let's pick up the pace. Let's live life at a certain pace. Let's do X number of things every week in our lives. Husbands and wives, right? That's a pace. And it's related to capacity, right? So somebody can have 20 people in their life every week. Some people can have seven, four in their life every week. Is 20 sinful? Is four sinful? These aren't sinful numbers, are they? It's just concepts. We're all kind of different. We just do stuff and we do life. But then you get married to somebody or you join a church. And the Bible calls on us to take care. Take up the other person's uniqueness and take it into account. I don't know how long it took. And maybe my wife would say, you still haven't learned this. I don't know how long it took for me to to recognize the differences in our pace issues. But I think for many years, and, and again, this is, this is what knowledge people do to history people. Um, I think for many years, my wife couldn't keep up with my pace of activity and involvement and et cetera. Thought stuff and planning. And I, I think she just lived within the wrongness of that. that must, I must be wrong. I must be, I'm just wrong. Because if I was more godly like my husband, if I was more running after these things, then I, I would be, I'd be okay then. But, you know, so you, 
Well, how about just living with an understanding element that we don't all run at the same pace? We don't all have the same capacity. In this passage, for the Corinthians, there were some with knowledge that their pace of knowledge, they, they could up and run with this. But there were others in the church who can't run with you. They stumble when they try to run at your speed. Maybe you need to slow up. See, knowledge doesn't have speeds, though. It's, you know, it's either wide open or stopped. It's either right or it's wrong. And listen, this is, this is where we live our lives with other people. Other people need a combination of knowledge and love for us to walk with them in a way that's going to work. Take care and love, right? That's, that's the clear principle, and it, it gets modeled for us by Jesus. And I'm going to jump quickly here, this last point. But go and look at Philippians chapter 2. It's the famous, have this mind in you that was also in Christ. It's filled with words like encouragement and comfort and affection and sympathy. Those are not knowledge words, by the way. Those are love words. You learn those words... By getting around love. It's not just a right or wrong issue. Now let me just say how complicated this is. I won't read these passages. You guys can look at them. I don't have time to do it. But it's a good Bible study for you to go look at. Alright, so you have three passages that are in your outline. You have Galatians chapter 5. You have Acts chapter 16. You have 1 Corinthians 9. We'll get to 1 Corinthians 9 eventually here. But here's what's happening. Here's where I mean the details are not so clear. Here's the tone of Paul. In Galatians chapter 5, I just want you to hear carefully on a particular matter, the knowledge in Galatians chapter 5. Emphatically, Paul is taking these Judaizers to task who have elevated circumcision in the setting of Galatia and have made it a big deal. And this is what he sounds like as he begins to close the letter in chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. All right, now you get a little bit of a feel for how Paul feels about circumcision? Then you scoot forward to Acts chapter 16, verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him. Because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. He did what? Paul took Timothy and circumcised him? After you just read how Paul feels about circumcision? Paul didn't show up to those Greeks with pistols of the Gentiles and just, hey, hey, Timothy's not, get over it. He's not circumcised. Do you understand the place of circumcision? Let me tell you who Abraham was. Let me tell you we're in the new covenant now. And argue from knowledge. And if there's a guy who could argue from knowledge, it's the guy who wrote down all the knowledge. So Paul wins that argument in a second. It was not knowledge that had him circumcised Timothy. It was love to reach those people and to do something that didn't even seem right. Listen, you know, if I'm, if I'm sitting back and I don't even know this Apostle Paul guy, I don't even know him, but I've read a few books on leadership. I'm going to critique Paul. That's, that's bad leadership, Paul. That's confusing. 
You taught something emphatically and you went and did something that totally pollutes that. He did, didn't he? I mean, like it or not, he did. And this is the challenge. And he turns around in 1 Corinthians 9, all part of this bigger argument. He says, listen, for though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. So when he stares into the Jews, into the Gentiles, into those with the law and those without the law, he looks at their humanity and he says, what do I need to do to care for that person? What do I need to do to reach them? How does the gospel get to them? How do I help meet the need that's in their life? He looked at the humanity of them, not just to win an argument, not just to do just technically what's right and what's wrong. This is, this is a challenge. Because those of us who are wired for the right and wrong dimension, we, we look at this and, you know, I kind of throw out the ideas, well, sometimes you've got to bend the rules. Did you hear the pulpit say that? Did Keith just say sometimes you've got to bend the rules? Yeah, right. All the history people right now are going, yeah, yeah. You just do, yeah, of course. The math people are going, oh, wait a minute. This could be our last day in church. That doesn't make any sense. Never, never, no. Oh, there's a lot of people calling outside some lines in here. It, it just can get blurry and challenging. Because the principles are clear. Now, now here's, you know, let me just in, encourage these, this principle dimension here. There's a principle being set out here that is crystal clear. All right, so don't make the mistake of kind of Missing the forest for the trees, which is what we do, right? We, we can't figure out the details, so we'll just cast the principle out. The principle is calling on you and me to take up others and to care for them into our way of doing things, our approach to doing things, the life that we are living. We are called to love them. We are called to that Philippians chapter 2 admonition. Do not just look out for your own interests, but look to the interests of others. All right, that's a, that's a governing umbrella that we live our lives underneath that. That's a principle that's clear. But how do we walk all that out? And that's where it gets sticky. And that's where churches end up in a whole nother ditch. That's not very helpful either. All right, for the sake of time, just read this with me. It's in your outline. I won't, I won't elaborate on it. Paul's going to finish this chapter in verse 11 saying something that sounds radical. Sounds radical. Verse 11. So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. How do you read that verse? What do you do with that verse? Paul learned of a concept that some might stumble and then he said, I will never eat meat. Do you think Paul never ate meat again? All the math people are going, yeah, of course. He said it. History people might not be too sure. All right, question. Here's my questions there in your outline there. Did Paul teach that no one should eat meat if there's the possibility that someone may stumble over that? Did Paul teach that no one should do anything that has the potential for another person to possibly stumble over? 
Paul's going to say this in one place. I'll never eat meat then. And then he's going to turn around two chapters later. And he's going to tell you to eat whatever's put in front of you without asking any questions. So is Paul declaring a prohibition on eating meat or not? Was his personal practice to become a non-meat eater for the rest of his life? Did Paul only apply that in limited settings? Did Paul eat meat from the marketplace when no one was looking? I mean, because Paul's a knowledge guy, right? He knows there's nothing wrong with this meat. It's just meat. The God who created the cattle on a thousand hills, he created these cattle too and belongs to him. Does this make Paul a hypocrite? What if Paul, what if people found out he was doing this? Wouldn't this damage his testimony? These are the details, right? These are the details that you need to be as concerned as you're going to get in this ditch as you are in an unloving ditch. This just brings on a whole other set of problems, right? So I, I know that in the room here, this is where the individuality thing comes in. There are certain individuals, and we've all got our own flavor, who have certain set of things that are absolutely out of bounds. Absolutely. So for some people, alcohol is out of bounds. Arts and entertainment, out of bounds. So we turn that into absolutes. But we don't make quite as big a deal, perhaps, out of food. We live in America. We're the most overweight country in the world. Anybody concerned about food? We live under the deceptive sway of wealth and prosperity and the good life and luxury Anybody concerned about anybody stumbling in those categories? Would you want to make a prohibition on owning a nice house, driving a nice car, going on a nice vacation? Some of you guys have housekeepers who come and help straighten your house out. There's a group of women in the church here who may have children who can't afford a housekeeper and their house looks like a tornado hit it every day. And they watch your house look like it's pristine, perfect. While you took a picture, while you were at a nice restaurant in town, they have McDonald's wrappers on their table. And you just came back from your second vacation this year and they haven't been on one in years. You don't, you don't think there's a potential that person's stumbling with envy and jealousy? Questioning God, God's goodness? Why does that person get and I don't? Listen, stumbling can come in a lot of ways, can it? So I know I just muddied the water, but I muddied the water on purpose. Because the principle is clear, but the details are not so clear. How are you going to apply this? Well, why don't we worry about applying the principle first? Why don't we worry about every one of our lives taking up the issue of, am I going to love others and consider where they are, and then respond to God in how I'm supposed to help them from where they are? 
Even if it's inconvenient, even if it changes my pace, even if it adjusts my lifestyle. I just make myself available to the principle rather than saying, well, no, no, no. First iron out the details, Keith, and then I'll let you know if I want to sign on for the principles. I'm going to tell you right now, I can't iron out the details. And if you try to make me iron out the details, I'm going to get extra biblical and I'm going to assign things to behaviors that suit my preferences and maybe they don't suit yours. And you're going to do that to me too. And we're going to create a miserable place called church. Can I, can I just tell you that there are people who are no longer in this church because of that? That they came to church here until they figured out their lifestyle, their pace, their preferences didn't suit the tone of some of the people in the church who made them feel like they weren't really serious Christians or really loved God. While we were trying to get them to prohibit certain things in their lives. Hey, maybe you need to prohibit some stuff. And the Bible's pretty good about telling you which ones. But there's a bunch of categories here that aren't prohibitive. That you still might need to dial back from. But I, I don't think we want to create an environment where we're telling everybody how to do that. There are details here we just need to leave to, to the Holy Spirit and to them. But there's a principle here that no one should be ignoring today. Because you can't figure the details out. That's weak. That's, that's a wimpy way of dealing with this passage. Well, you saying this? You saying that? Present all these crazy extremes. Well, I'm not going to do anything with this. Can, can you just say that there's something here for us to do something with? There is a tension in our lives between knowledge and love that we need to manage that with the people that God has brought into our lives. That's worth doing something with. Even if you can't work all the details out. Let's at least do that. Let's stand up. Eric, go ahead and come back up here. Before I take a moment to pray for us, don't forget, guys, if you're on the Mexico team, come up and let us pray for you right after service. And if you have other needs, we would be delighted to pray with you as well. All right, let's invite the personal communication of the Spirit of God. Lord, be in our midst to help us, Lord, to see ourselves. Lord, we know some things. We've read the Bible, heard a lot of messages, got our doctrine, read books. But you kind of warn us, if anybody thinks he knows, he doesn't yet know as he ought to. Because what we know needs to be under the influence of our love for you and our being known by you. Lord, we are a church like Corinth was a church. We're a gathering of people, strangers in many ways. Lord, as we prayed for this group this morning, my eyes filled with tears with the sober reality. of hearing you say don't lose any of these along the way that's who we are Lord as a church Lord maybe we haven't pondered 
do, do I need to adjust my life? Is there anything about how I live, things that I do, that create stumbling blocks for others? Or maybe, maybe I've never asked that question before. Lord, would you help us ask that question this morning? Would you help us ponder life decisions, life practices, behaviors, attitudes, what we post on social media, communications we have with other people, appearances that we give by things that we do or don't do. What I want to ignore is my life building people up. Is it edifying others? Is it helping them to get to the other side, to not get lost along the way, to be a part of your kingdom, to be joined to your people? Lord, is my life helping with that? Or are there some who are stumbling? Lord, I pray for husbands and wives this morning who are living with half the equation. Their relationship and their conflicts have become about right and wrong. Who's right? Who's wrong? Shots have been fired. Accusations have been made. Some have given up. Can't win the argument. Lord, would you use this passage to open the hearts of husbands and wives to each other. There are strength and weakness components in husbands and wives. And you who are strong, whatever way you are strong, do you take into account ways in which your spouse is weak? Do you adjust yourself? Do you change your pace? Do you lower your demands? Do you make room for them? Are you patient? Well, this is why Paul had to explain what love was. Love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. There's qualities to patience and love that we need. God, would you make us this kind of people? Lord, I pray for us as a church. We are building a community here. We have welcomed the next group to be added into our midst. Lord, we are building a community to tell the story about our God, who he is and what he's like and what he's done through the gospel. Lord, we need this reality. Our marriages, our families need this, Lord. Would you help us? Lord, in this room, I pray right now, Lord, what happened in this passage, what happened in this room, there are some here who have been arguing about the wrong thing, and they need somebody to counsel them. They need an Apostle Paul to step in and say, you're talking about the wrong stuff. God, I pray for husbands and wives, broken relationships, business partnerships, people in the church who are in conflict, that they would seek out counsel from outside of themselves to help them escape from where they've been trapped, to help them see the other things that matter in their lives. God, thank you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the power that it has over our lives to rescue us from ditches. May it take its place in our lives. 
for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.